HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Register now for PASA's 2023 conference in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, featuring more than 90 sessions on farming and food systems, as well as mixers and meetups and a trade show. Learn more at pasafarming.org slash conference. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Resi's Editorial Director, Paolo Lucchese. In this episode, we'll talk to Paolo about the state of the restaurant industry, what to expect dining out in 2023, and we'll hear Paolo's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia liked to be in the know about the latest trends, and she loved dining out. Yeah, certainly she was into the chefs, tasting their dishes, discovering their techniques, and advocating for those who really impressed her. But she also loved the whole experience, going out, dining with friends, both new and old. After all, it was lunch at a particular French restaurant in Rouen that changed the trajectory of her entire life. At the foundation, we believe that if Julia was still with us, she would have been actively involved in supporting restaurants through the challenges presented and exposed by the pandemic. That's what spurred us to make multiple grants over the last few years for restaurant relief including supporting World Central Kitchen's initiative to repurpose shuttered restaurant kitchens. We granted $50,000 to support San Francisco, Oakland, New York City, Boston, and Honolulu Chinatown venues to feed the food insecure in their communities, chosen by 2022 Julia Child Award recipient Grace Young. Just as Julia was, the foundation is committed to supporting restaurants and those dedicated to making hospitality happen. It's clear we are at a point of profound and likely permanent change. So as we forward into 2023, we wanted to get some expert insight. Someone who has his finger on the pulse of the restaurant industry is Resi's editorial director, Paolo Lucchese. If you haven't used Resi yet, it's a digital reservation system as well as an operating system used by restaurants in hospitality management. Started in 2014, Resi was acquired by American Express in 2019. 
Resi aspires to be a go-to destination for diners by offering exclusive access, original content, and chef-driven events. Born and raised in South San Francisco, Paolo was a reporter and editor at the San Francisco Chronicle, covering the Northern California food scene before joining Resi. He's co-written several cookbooks, including Flour Plus Water Pasta and A Burger to Believe In. Before working at the Chronicle, Paolo was the founding editor of Eater San Francisco and later at Eater National. He joins us today to talk about the current state of the restaurant industry and share his insights about what we can expect dining out in 2023. Welcome to the podcast, Paolo. Thanks so much for having me. We're glad you could join us. So let, let's start with, uh, hopefully you can shine an optimistic light on something that sometimes seems rather dire, but how bad is it out there for restaurants right now? Um, it's, it's a big question, right? Um, it's complicated, I guess, is the easy answer. Um, I think, you know, whenever we talk about like kind of, you know, these macro dining trends, I think, I think it's important to note that, you know, restaurants aren't a monolith. Um, the industry is not a monolith. So it's, you know, it's a lot of variation from certainly from city to city, from kind of restaurant to kind of restaurant, from neighborhood to neighborhood. Um, but, you know, it's tough right now, I'm not going to lie, um, for a lot of restaurants. I think, you know, as we enter the new year, you know, January, February, um, those are traditionally slow months. Um, mm. And after that big holiday boost, hopefully, uh, but, you know, some restaurants will get a little um, a little boost this this week with Lunar New Year. Uh, Valentine's Day is obviously a huge day. Uh, but otherwise, you know, the winter months are usually a little slower. Um, but then there's these so many other factors that are really um, challenging restaurants right now. Um, a lot of it is, you know, you take it into context of what's happened the last few years with restaurants and, you know, the industry is changing and it being forced to evolve um, in a lot of ways that I think, you know, hopefully do improve it in the long run, but there's a lot of growing pains right now and what's kind of proving to be almost like a new normal for restaurants, you know, um, this rest industry is kind of, you know, endured this, you know, this series of storms, <laughs> you know, since the pandemic uh, started uh, now almost three years ago you know, you saw like this evolution of what they've had to deal with is just storm upon storm. Um, you know, obviously the pandemic shutdowns were huge. Um, you know, the openings, reopenings, closings, you know, all the variants coming in. Um, and then also all these other things like, you know, costs have skyrocketed. Um, the supply chains are tough. Uh, debts have accumulated. Staffing has been a constant problem. Uh, but, you know, I think one thing we've seen is that, you know, a lot of restaurants are still here. Restaurants are resilient. The industry is so resilient. Um, and to cope with all these challenges, operations have changed. And, you know, they will continue to. But it's, you know, it's the, the good news is that the demand is there, I think. Um, you know, generally speaking, I think it's probably fair to say 2022 was the year that dining really surged back after some tough years. So, like, diners want to go out. Um, by and large, we're seeing in our data that, you know, the demand is higher than it's ever been, even the going back to pre-pandemic levels. Um, so there's some op there's a lot of optimism there. I think uh, you're seeing that restaurants have certainly in the last 10 years um, become part of pop culture. Uh, you know, I think we're, so I think there's a lot of optimism in addition to, you know, the obvious challenges from the industry side of it. So, so it's going to be a continued dance. Yeah, that's similar to what we've heard from folks we work with, um, particularly from from our home base in Santa Barbara, which is the demand is really strong, but the ability to meet the demand is still really challenging, partly because of supply chains, but mostly, especially in community that has sort of unique dynamics like Santa Barbara from staffing. And I feel like that's also impacting diners in the sense that a lot of diners are returning, as you said, in 2022 with kind of 2019 expectations. And I was just curious from, you know, Resi's experience, what what your customers are telling you about, you know, how they're experiencing this this change world and also the, the places that they're um, eating at, you know, the, the level of service or, or what have you guys been hearing and finding? Yeah, I mean, for these... For these big kind of trend-like questions, we always we always try to see what we can contribute to the conversation with Resi, and 
you know, we're, so we try to look at our data a lot. And I think that's a really helpful way to kind of look at this stuff. Um, you know, and also maybe goes back to my, my background as, as a reporter, um, where, you know, you really got to, you know, show, show your work and kind of, and, you know, one thing that we're seeing is, you know, like we're, we're diner behavior has changed, um, given that the restaurant industry is oper- restaurant operations are so different now. Um, you know, people are, you know, with, it's harder to get into a lot of restaurants because, you know, maybe restaurants are closed, you know, maybe two or three extra days than they were pre pandemic. Um, mm. you know, I think, and when they're closed, uh, you know, or when they are open rather, uh, they're closing earlier or they're opening later or, you know, so hours are changed. Um, so it's not, and that's, you know, in a lot of ways, that's, how a lot of restaurants are finding sustainability, not only from a business side, but from a, a personal side, a, a people side, a human side, you know, giving, you know, not making their staff, you know, work until 2 a.m. is what a lot of folks are doing here in San Francisco, you know, giving, giving staff a little qual- more quality of life. Um, and those are all like really great changes for the human side of it. Um, but, you know, diners have to adjust as well. Uh, it's a, like I said, it's a dance between both sides of seeing what works, what is sustainable. Um, but for example, you know, like we're seeing more reservations at 5 p.m. than 2019. Um, so, you know, stuff like that where people are eating earlier, uh, we're seeing more people set notifies, which is, you know, basically kind of, you know, if there's not a reservation, you can set a notify on Resi and you can pop up or if someone gets, if there's a cancellation, you can slide into that spot. Um, so, you know, twice as many people are setting notifies now than in September, 2022, then September, 2019. Um, and those that are setting are setting them more. Um, so like, you know, diner behavior will continue to, uh, to change, I think as well. Well, I think that's interesting with the whole, you know, photographing your food culture of Instagram yeah. coming up. It sort of in 2019 pre-pandemic, it, it already felt like dining out was kind of a competitive sport. <laughs> so I feel like the restricted supply may only, especially with the latest, hottest places, kind of intensify that. But are you finding more feedback from diners where their expectations aren't being met or they're getting more frustrated? Or do you actually think people get it and are kind of understanding, especially those people who are, you know, into food. What have you been hearing in that regard? Yeah, I think most people get it. Um, that's anecdotal, but I mean, we don't, we don't deal in like user reviews a lot, you know, so we don't really have, you know, we're not going to hear that noise, um, like in a way that like Yelp would. Uh, but you know, I think, I think what is interesting on that front is, you know, like as you know, one, a major thing that, um, that restaurants are kind of finding their way now is, you know, prices. Uh, so a lot of restaurants have had to raise prices uh, in the last few years, let alone last few months, uh, due to mm. a confluence of issues um, to try, again, try to find that sustainable path for their individual business. Um, but, you know, we did a, we did a poll with a, a thousand uh, consumers, diners, um, and, you know, 41% said they would be willing to pay higher prices if they knew the staff was treated well. Um, for Gen Z, that's 59%. So like so they would pay a premium. So I think, you know, I think it's, it's going to be a culture shift to understand that you're probably going to have to pay more at a lot of restaurants compared to what you were earlier, uh, a few years ago. Um, but I think if people can start to understand the why and, um, you know, why you're paying more and it's, you know, certainly maybe it's because of staff, uh, maybe it's, pay higher wages. Maybe it's because ingredients simply cost more. Uh, maybe it's because the restaurant is only open, you know, fewer days a week and has to be sustainable. So I think, I think there's that education component that's, that's seeping into the mainstream eventually. Yeah. I was struck by, I I've lived abroad quite a lot and it's interesting that this model is much closer to a European model of restaurants are not open as long hours. They don't have as many people staffing the restaurant and they, you know, are only open certain days of the week and they just have more restrictions. It's not the standard. And we've talked to many people who said they think this is going to evolve too. like the, the traditional American model of customer service, which is the customer is always right. And we, you know, do backflips until they're all satisfied. (laughs) Do, Do you also feel like that is part of the, the potential evolution, not necessarily to a European model, but to a more, I don't know, restricted and controlled model of what is service by restaurants. Absolutely. I, th- I think you, I think you hit the nail on the head with, you know, there's, there are a lot of influences that are in, in the European model and also, you know, other around the world as well, where, you know, it's, it's certainly the, 
customer approach uh, that you mentioned, but even just like, you know, menus, like menus are smaller now. That's just how it is um, for a lot of restaurants. Again, restaurants aren't a monolith, but, you know, I think you are seeing more smaller menus, uh, limited items, uh, more set menus you're seeing because it's just simply easier to um, easier to staff, easier to prepare, um, easier to limit food waste, uh, e- easier to control costs. Um, that's something that's common in Europe where, you know, there's just you have fewer options on the menu. That's totally fine. Um, and another thing is also, you know, there's obviously this has been in the works for years, but it finally sees like, you know, it's still moving. Whereas like, you know, rethinking the tipping conundrum, which has been, you know, written about for the last 10 years. But, you know, here in, in San Francisco, you know, it feels like it's got another wave and, you know, maybe it'll it'll stick this time a little more than it has in the five five years ago. So um, there's a lot of models from abroad that are starting to be incorporated more and more in the, in the States. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second, because we we honored Dan, Danny Meyer with the Julia Child Award uh, early on, I think it was the third year. And he had been one of the innovators at his different restaurants, mostly New York Union Square Hospitality Group of No Tipping. And I felt like right before the pandemic, it, it, it was not working. There was too much customer and particularly actually front of house staff revolt. But I feel like all the, you know, especially now I'm in Los Angeles, where Dining out is expensive. For, there's all kinds of surcharges so and tipping. And also now, even this is not exactly dining out, but almost every point of sale food purchases prompts you to tip right in front of the staff member. <laughs> I, I try to, although I find half the time it's not even acknowledged. So then you're like caught between guilt and dissatisfaction. But it just seems also sort of out of control and that I would like to think this, let's call it a European idea, that everyone is paid a fair wage and has benefits is a model we're moving to. Do you? But I felt like we already were tried it and the, there was so much pushback. Are you seeing more of it actually kind of bubbling up again as a potential model? I, I am, yeah. It, it, here, in, here in San Francisco, we've got a lot of leading restaurants who are, you know, giving it another go, so to speak. Um, and I think, you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, benefits to it. Um, and hopefully it, you know, I think consumer education is uh, stronger where it was a few, few years ago. Um, and I think, I think a lot of restaurants that are trying it again um, have learned from the mistakes of the past as well, in terms of, you know, how you deliver this message to diners. Um, in addition to like, as you mentioned, the, you know, figuring out a way that it doesn't uh you know that the front of house staff uh is in favor of it as well and really just breaking down those barriers with the with the team as a whole for a restaurant as opposed to really um having a front versus back of house dynamic which i think is one of the one of the the dangers of kind of the last generation that tried to do this um i think that was a rare that was there was friction there um but now i think you're seeing a lot of folks really trying to build something new from the ground up um, as opposed to bend something that was wasn't working before. Um, so I, you know, a, a restaurant, I'm thinking like a, a restaurant and bar in San Francisco called Bar Agricole or Good Good Culture Club. Uh, these are restaurants that really, you know, strip down their operations to the bare bones and have tried to rebuild something better than it was in the past. Yeah, no, I hope that people continue to focus on that because I think that the 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 tipping culture is very out of balance. As we've talked about on other episodes, so much of the whole uh, model of the way restaurants are structured, which has nothing to do with the decisions made by individual restaurateurs versus government and state, federal and state regulations of how people are paid, goes back to a period of gross discrimination and inequity. And it would maybe even the more people understand that its roots are even based in that, that they'll be even, you know, kind of embracing a more um, fair model that also is just ultimately easier and more transparent for the for the diner. Absolutely, I mean, yeah, hundred percent. So uh, let's let's talk for a minute about Resi because um, you guys are a little bit newer to the scene than some of the other services people might be totally familiar with or have used a lot, like Open Table. And yeah, I was interested that you guys kind of are covering 
service-wise and maybe customer-wise both sides. But I was just curious, are you actually more of a restaurant management tool that happens to service diners? Or are you guys also a tool for diners? Or is it 50-50? How does Resi describe it? Yeah, I, th- I think it's both. Uh, I think we're we're a tool for restaurants and a, a tech tool for restaurants and a service for diners. I, mean, I think we we are both, and one fuels the other. And you know, I think that's kind of a big reason of you know what we do well. I hope um, you know the mission statement of Resi since its inception has been that we want to forge the future of the restaurant industry, and you know we want to be this essential resource for anyone who is dining obsessed. And you know, so we we're here in this in this kind of space that sits between diners' love of restaurants and the best restaurants in the world, and we want to bring that connection to life. So you know, as you think about like you know, I'm I'm very proud of I'm I'm the editorial director, so you know we have a great content team, and and we just tell the stories of these restaurants, and it's it's so great to be able to you know connect diners with the restaurants they want to go to. Um, I I don't I don't believe there's a quote unquote best restaurant, uh, but I think there might be you know a best one for you tonight that you want to go to, and so we want to kind of forge these connections and tell the stories of the people who work who work at restaurants who who you know, because with the idea that, you know, if you know the people who cook your food, if you understand what goes into a restaurant, then you'll, you know, you'll appreciate it more, you'll like it more, and you'll just have, you know, a better experience. And obviously, and then you can make the reservation right on the page. It's, you know, it's just like a one-stop shop for anyone who loves restaurants. That's the idea. Yeah, no, I think it's important to also remind people that, you know, you can have the best food in the world, but if you don't have the hospitality side down, it it doesn't matter and it will likely fail. <laughs> the movie, The yeah. Menu, if people have seen that sort of illustrates that quite well now of of how it how it, it can be or there was even going back to the Seinfeld episode with the soup Nazi and that was sort of a parody of that but I think people often lose sight of and even I think chefs sometimes lose sight of that 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 ultimately actually a restaurant with mediocre food and great hospitality can actually succeed uh, maybe as well if not better than one with great food and really poor hospitality yeah absolutely I mean that's that's the magic of restaurants right it's you know it's you know, there's, and so in, in any city that you live in, like you have such a wealth of options, um, you know, most cities at least, but, and it could, you know, whether you want, you know, restaurant A or restaurant B, like it's just, that's the magic of restaurants is you can have so many different options. It's all about this culture, culture of the world right around the corner. Um, it's it's just amazing, and you know you forge con- connections with restaurants. You become a regular. Um, that to me is that's what makes restaurants so special. Like those the communities, um, and just you know the the way that you know you can understand culture, connections, life through food, celebration. These are all things that you experience at restaurants, and I think that's something that really, for me personally, became um, clarified during the pandemic, where you know. A lot of restaurants were just, you know, hurting so so bad, closed altogether, and you know that's that's what we lose when we lose restaurants from a from a city. And you know, there's nothing like restaurants; they're really just a unique, unique thing. And that's kind of why it's. Um, I just think it's a fascinating topic of conversation. Their businesses, their culture, uh, their community. It's you know they're a really nuanced, you know, organism almost. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that was also what the pandemic exposed is how much people missed that and saw it as more than just eating out or a place to eat, that it it really was both things. And maybe that's what's been driving this surge back in 2022 is it's not just the food, as I was saying at the top of the show, what Julia loved about it was the entire experience, which was very much about social and community. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a break and we'll be back with more about the future of dining out with Resi's editorial director, Paolo Lucchese. Stay with us. Cultivate farms and food systems that nourish, heal, and empower. Register now for PASA Sustainable Agriculture's 2023 conference. Access more than 90 sessions on topics including environmental conservation, food justice, sustainable food and textile production, renewable energy, and much more. 
featuring a not-to-be-missed lineup of speakers, including Indigenous environmental scientist and author of Fresh Banana Leaves, Jessica Hernandez, the best-selling author of The Art of Fermentation, Sandra Katz, co-owners of Heritage Seed Company, True Love Seeds, Owen Taylor and Chris Bolden Newsom, and many more. PASA's conference takes place in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 8th through 11th and includes social networking events plus an expansive trade show. Register now at pasafarming.org conference. That's pasafarming.org conference. Welcome back. We're talking to Resi's editorial director, Paolo Lucchese, about what to expect while dining out this year. So let's let's talk about trends. What are you foreseeing? What is Resi uh, predicting in terms of either the trends or how dining out will be defined uh, in 2023? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Big question. Um, it was funny. I was, I was listening to uh, Jamila Robinson last last week or last year about the about the trends um, and she's just like so spot on in all, all her prognoses for the year. Um, so there's a lot of pressure to, to replicate, but I think a lot of what she says, <laughs> I, I think a lot of what she says, um, holds true this year. I think you're, you're seeing a lot of this similar themes to be honest. Um, but I, a, a few things that we've kind of like that I think that I'm excited about that we're excited about. Um, you know, I think, I think we're clearly seeing a new wave of just evolution of, like taste the tasting menu, I think is a really thing that we've kind of noticed a lot across our, our markets. Um, you know, I think tasting menus, um, traditionally they have this box that they've been in, you know, it's very French, uh, Japanese with omakase menus, which is a little different, but still like this, you know, this coursed out long experience, uh, or maybe not so long some in, in, in many cases. Um, but we're really seeing a new generation of chefs and restaurants becoming um, using that format. And I think that we have a, a columnist who was nominated for a James Beard Award this year, Mahira Rivers. Um, and she wrote about this topic. And I think she just, it, her perspective was so awesome because really thinking about like, you know, a West African influenced restaurant like Ikoi in London or, you know, Kasama in, in Chicago, which is modern Filipino. And you're having all these different, different cuisines that have not traditionally not, use the tasting menu format, use the tasting menu format in new and exciting ways. And I think it says a few things. I think it, you know, certainly there's a business rationale to it because as we mentioned earlier, you know, it's a little easier to control costs with a, with a menu like that. But also, you know, this is a format that has been reserved for, you know, you know, what we think of, you know, as quote unquote fancy food, maybe like a French or Japanese, but, you know, really being able to fight for these, these chefs are positioning their own cultures as worthy to pay more for. And, you know, and I think that's what the tasting menu format it's, it's, you can tell a story in a tasting menu that you can't in another way. And it's not to say, you know, these restaurants need to be like a thousand dollars, like many of the Michelin three-star restaurants, you, you know, you could have a tasting menu experience for, you know, maybe a hundred bucks. Um, but being able to push that form to new places, um, that are, you know, maybe a little more, um, lively than some of the jewel boxes of the past. And those aren't, I think there's a place for all, all restaurants. Like, you know, like I said, it's, it's what you, you, the diner are looking for. Um, but this is almost like a new branch of the tasting menu tree that is really growing. It's really exciting. Um, and I, I'm going to, I'm going to quote Mahira because I, she said it better than I could, because, you know, she says those experiences feel like opportunities to challenge assumptions, including my own, her own, of how certain cuisines should present themselves. Um, and it feels right to see every cuisine translated to something as special and story driven as a tasting menu. Um, and forgive me, I'm a, you know, I'm a writer by background. So, you know, I feel like it's easier to express via writing than, uh, off the cuff sometimes. But I think that was just like, that's just a perfect encapsulation of that trend that I'm really excited to see. We see some of those in, in San Francisco as well. Like, you know, a place like California's, um, or, or Hi Felicia, which is um, Chef Amana's, you know, it's like a supper club menu. And, you know, that's just really, you sit at a long table, they bring you a course down menu, and it's just, you know, it's a good time. It's just, you know, you're you're in a room with, with new people for uh, an evening. And it's just like, you know, this is not, um, you know, a precious, you know, 
course out menu in the way that you might have experienced it 10 years ago. Uh, this is something that's really exciting, I think. Um, so I think, I think that's a really exciting uh, development. Um, you know, elsewhere, I think, you know, you're going to continue to see um, a lot of, you know, I think you, you have different markets that are kind of, you know, popping up. Um, you know, I think we've been kind of watching what's happening in Miami. Miami has a ton of uh, new restaurants, both uh, from their uh, Miami, Miami owned restaurant groups, but also a lot of other restaurant groups are opening in Miami. And that that's a really uh, booming place. I think they did uh, very well uh, from a restaurant point of view during the pandemic. Um, and they're continuing to surge there as that becomes more of a dining destination um, compared to maybe where it was, you know, uh, a decade or two ago. Um, and I think that's really interesting. Um, but yeah, no, I think there's lots of fun stuff coming up. Um, a lot of it is di dictated by finances. You know, I think that's, you know, to the taste of menus, I think you're going to see more, um, again, more omakase restaurants because that is a very um, uh, strong business model. Uh, you know, it's the cost of labor is relatively low compared to uh, a more staffed restaurant. Um, and obviously you can control costs and kind of a little... Uh, sibling offshoot of that is kind of uh, lots of uh, uh, hand roll restaurants. Tamaki uh, restaurants are popping up across this across the country, um, and again, that's it's a similar business model as the omakase, but at a lower price point. Um, so I think that's that's also really exciting, and you're also seeing that kind of trickle down into you know non Japanese menus as well. Just those hand rolls where you know more um, more restaurants are just putting them on the menu because people love them, and they're Instagramable probably. I, I wanted to go back to your comment about Miami and I was just, yeah. you know, cause Miami is a big city and a fun and tourist place, but you could define New York is that LA is that San Francisco is that Chicago is that what do you, what is going on in Miami that, that, that is uh, unique or standing out or you guys are, are, are sending journalists there to try to figure out yourselves? Yeah, no. Um, <clears throat> well, we've, you know, we, we've, we always love to work with um, a journalist on the ground. So, you know, it's, as opposed to sending someone from, you know, New York or LA or whoever. Um, so, you know, we've, we've, we've commissioned a bunch of stories from, from our folks and my our friends in Miami. And what's, it's kind of a confluence of things. I think, I think certainly there's a lot of um, outsiders coming in, you know, you have the Robichon, I think uh, you've got certainly a major food group food group, um, which, you know, brought Carbone there, um, among other restaurants. Uh, you've got Daniel Balloud. Uh, you know, we've got a bunch of, you know, these largely New York uh, New York folks. Um, Coat is there, the Korean restaurant. Um, but more so than that, I think the really part is, you know, it's the rest, there's about a decade ago, I think there was a groundswell of Miami owners, chefs, operators, who really were, you know, changed the city. And it's chefs with the roots in the city began, they 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 kind of started open opening in the mid 2000s uh, a lot of like kind of just more neighborhood restaurants. Um, and these were restaurants that maybe weren't didn't like kind of necessarily uh, fit in this, you know, that stereotypical neon Miami mold of, you know, whatever you want to think of Miami stereotypes. Um, these were like really just amazing food and they push forward Miami's food culture, you know, folks like uh, Michelle Bernstein, um, who, you know, Niven Patel. Um, so like these were really um, a new generation of restaurants and they've just continued to build and build and build. And it, this is something that takes years to build this, a new generation of like really um, a Miami language, uh, you know, and now you see it a lot, like in place like Mandolin and Macchialina. Uh, these are really just awesome restaurants. Uh, Boya Day just got a Michelin star this year. And, you know, those restaurants have come to maturity in the last decade plus, And now they're opening new offshoots because, you know, when a restaurant is successful, like that, those are, those are some opportunities that come. You can open more restaurants. You want to take care of your staff. Um, if you have a, you know, a great chef de cuisine, maybe you want to give her her own restaurant. So these are the kind of ways that, you know, that, that generations can build and where really like a really, um, a new restaurant culture can build as well. And, and so I think that's kind of one thing that happened in Miami. Um, and certainly there was, you know, I think other, other, uh, these out, outside restaurant groups um, saw opportunity, you know, um, Massimo Batura is opening there later this year. And, you know, I think there's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a population that clearly um, 
is enjoying restaurant culture right now. I think they've enjoyed it throughout the last two years. Um, and, you know, I mean, maybe there's, I think you're getting a lot of, it's a nice combination of tourists and locals. It's, you know, it's almost, I, it, it seems to me as someone who's kind of, you know, seen the evolution over the last decade of, you know, where these, um, you know, larger restaurant groups seem to gravitate towards, you know, I, I think once upon a time it was Vegas. Um, and I think that's still certainly the case to some degree, but I think this, there's a magnetic draw to Miami right now as well. Yeah, no, that, that's really beautifully painted. I, I kind of get it now. It, it's a little bit you guys are picking up on. It's almost like Miami is maturing into a full-blown yeah. international food city in the way that San Francisco did after New York and LA did. And it's sort of joining, it's not so much that it's like, Miami, it's this uh, maturing of all these seeds that were planted years and years ago, and it's kind of hit a tipping point, which is both from inside and then people recognizing that from the outside and joining. Absolutely. Which I have to say, I might get criticism for this, but I think it's slightly different than Las Vegas, which is all these people went in and made it more of a food city. Um, but um, happy to hear from Las Vegas listeners who would <laughs> counter that point of view. Um, so I want, I was surprised by this um, part of that study that you mentioned um, that Resi commissioned that said that 43% of Gen Xers would choose a steakhouse for special occasion dining. And for me, with my own biases and preferences, that would no longer ever occur to me. But I, I was, you know, sitting in Los Angeles where plant-based is all the thing or all different kinds of ethnic cultures are really the, the focus. It struck me about, is that also a contextual thing that when you look at the country as a whole, there's a different point of view? And do we have sort of skewed perspectives on the coast? Or what was Resi's take on, on that? That's really surprised me in 2023. Although it's looking backward, but yeah, I mean, here and I'm in San Francisco, and I, you know, we're we're not too far apart in California, but it, it surprised me too. But then, you know, the the more I thought about it, you know, maybe it's not so surprising. And I think it's maybe a combination of of uh, two factors. I think you know we're maybe not, you know, it, here in San Francisco, like you know, the ultimate celebratory restaurant is House of Prime Rib. It, that place is every generation. It's you know the the Forty ers and the Giants go there to celebrate. They have big things there it's the place where you'll still see you know former mayors but you'll also see um you know a whole new generation of families and you know young kids and gen gen zers so i it's it's for everybody and and that that's a place where you know you see it, they just have their thing down um and so i think it's i think there's a lot of groundswell still for you know steakhouses and i i, I guess we some we can your listeners can debate if a prime rib house is um, <laughs> a steakhouse, if that counts as steak. But I well, it's certainly a meat-focused place. But but actually, I, I get what you're saying in the sense that actually the one tradition that I think steakhouses, particularly that are expensive, uh, which m m more often or not they are because of what they serve, they have the tradition of hospitality down yeah. pat. And certainly from what we were talking about at the top of the show, that if you're going to go out for a celebration with a group, you're going to select somewhere where you know you can rely on the hospitality factor in addition Absolutely. to the food. So, and it's a, it's a show without that, you know, maybe the, like we mentioned, like the $1,000 price point of some of the Michelin star restaurants. And, you know, it's also a little more, um, it's accessible because you can maybe choose what you want to order in, in a way that you can at some other high-end restaurants. Um, it's it's special without you know being over the top necessarily, uh, but it, it's it's a show. It's entertainment. You know, you'll get your your fancy martinis, and you know you get the shakers going, and um, you get maybe uh, table side carving or table side Caesar salad <laughs> toss. You know, stuff like that. Um, and, and then I think the other thing that I think is really interesting is you're also seeing a new generation of steakhouses um, that are kind of coexisting along the older ones. You know, I think a good dichotomy is seen in New York where you have Four Charles Prime Rib, which is an exclusive supper club that's one of the city's most sought after restaurants on Resi. That's, that place is one of the top, you know, notified spots in, in the city. Um, it's very, it's very modern um, without kind of, but still kind of keeps the best parts of that steakhouse um, that, you know, that dim supper club ambience. Uh, and then, right, you know, then you got Peter Luger's and that kind of is the same idea. It's like, you know, it's, it's, that's where 
people are still going. Um, and, you know, even in a place like LA, you know, you have both places like Dear John's and American Beauty. And those are also kind of redefining the steakhouse genre through this modern LA, California lens, um, you know, and, you know, I think there's still this, it's a, you know, it's kind of almost, you know, it's a, it's just a, it's a genre that is getting updated. Um, and then as, as, as we pass through time, the places that have been around, you know, you know, kind of evolve into this legacy status and this kind of almost like museum pieces in a good, in the best way possible, because, you know, you can't really, you know, replicate a lot of those places anymore. Um, so, and as I, and I think there's a lot of folks that are really updating it in a new way. I think Coat, uh, which is in New York and Miami is that's giving that, you know, that Korean interpretation to, um, which obviously has a long, rich history of, you know, of, of awesome stakes, but, um, yeah. So I think there's a lot of really interesting innovation and respect for the, the older folks as well. I love that. Yeah. Unfortunately in, in London coat is a terrible chain of like, um, it is a steakhouse, uh, but it's like, um, you know, serviced stuff comes in packets and stuff like that. <laughs> so it's like launched in my head where I'm like, I won't go there anymore. Cause I know it just all got defrosted in the microwave. Um, but uh, interested to check out the the alternate uh, new interpretation. Yeah, the other um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Our, um, I was also while we're on that, just because I I'm personally really fascinated by these these differences and maybe these unfortunate marketing guru labels. But are Gen Z diners? Are you guys finding are their expectations? Because you mentioned that before about um, staffing and price points. Are they, do you find that they're significantly different from Gen Xers and are millenniums somehow like lost in the, <laughs> the shovel <laughs> between Gen Xers and Gen Zers or Gen Xers and Gen Zers are the two people with enough disposable income to eat out. So millennials are stuck at home with their kids now. Yeah, I guess I'm the millennial in that group. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think it's a hard question. I think it depends kind of how you frame it, frame it to be honest. Um, you know, I think, like I mentioned, I think, I think Gen Zers, and maybe this is me being a little more anecdotal, but you know, I think Gen Gen, Gen Zers have grown up with restaurants as pop culture um, a lot. You know, I think that started to shift in you know in the last ten to twenty years um, to really you know I think restaurants are mainstream in a way they weren't you know mm. even even with the dawn of the Food Network. I think I think it's shifted in the two thousands to something else. You know, it's it's not this isn't just you know. It's, it's not just, you know, Tyler Florence and Bobby Flay on the TV and those guys also work in restaurants. Now, like restaurants are the subject in a lot of, you know, pop culture. Um, and so I think there's a different appreciation. I think I think the work that the food media as a whole has done in the fa- past few years has really shifted the narrative in a great way to to the people of the, in the industry. Um, you know, you're seeing so many more stories um, centering workers, centering the challenges that operators face. Um, and I think that is, I think the Gen Zers in, in particular have kind of come of age in that era. Um, so I think you are seeing some different kinds of attitude um, on that front. But um, but yeah, no, I mean, at the same time, you know, I think there's some, you know, more other other differences. I think one difference is you probably discovery of where, where different generations find restaurants to eat. I, you know, I think discovery for Gen Zers is probably, um, you know, it is largely TikTok and other social media, uh, whereas, you know, some of the other ones might, you know, other generations probably still rely on uh, media outlets, uh, traditional media outlets. Um, reading. So think, <laughs> reading, yeah, <laughs> not a video. Um, but yeah, no, I think, and so I think you're seeing it is it's slightly different, but at the same time, um, you know, I do, you know, I don't want to, you know, just overlook just obvious which which is i think you know you go to restaurants you love and you know the best way to kind of get customers is you know create great experiences and you know i think i think a lot of a lot of diners like to go to you know they rely on restaurants in their neighborhood they rely on restaurants they love they want to be regulars and you know we in one of our polls it was you know the biggest biggest places in mission to steakhouses for you know a celebratory meal is is uh you know you're trying true favorites and it is um and even more so, I think the one that really, the the number that really got resonated with me is that you know it is um, the the vast majority of diners, regardless of 
what generation they are. Nearly ever, 93% of respondents say they believe that dinner at a restaurant is a necessary component of a special night out. And I think that that resonates with me a lot because I think that's something that's really universal across generations, across across demographics is, you know, a lot of people still, you know, whether it's, you know, a date or, you know, celebrating a, a life event or, you know, catching up with a friend, um, however you want to define special, uh, a lot of that connection still happens at restaurants. And that's really, really um, resonant for me personally. I think that's a great note to go to break on. We'll be right back to hear Paolo's Julia moment. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't, have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here is when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Paola, what's your Julia Moment? All right. Um, well, I have to admit, uh, Julia was a bit before my time. So I don't have a traditional Julia moment. Um, so I'm going to see if I can take the opportunity to zag. Although I will do the asterisk of, you know, even just, you know, listening to your podcast, the courage of your convictions line that you play in the introduction to the segment, that is, that resonates every time. And that's just like a North star for me to, that I follow in my day-to-day life now. So thank you, Julia, for that. Um, but I, my Julia moment is a bit, maybe unorthodox. So, um, so I don't really have much experience with her cause I'm, it's a little before my time. I wanted to spotlight Cecilia Chang. Um, and I, my, my connection is that Cecilia, um, who died in the last few years, um, was often dubbed, um, the Julia child of, of Chinese cooking in America. Um, and I, I, I knew Cecilia in, here in San Francisco. Uh, she was incredibly kind. Um, I miss her very much. And she was an amazing woman. Um, and I, a few things kind of really just still resonate with Cecilia. Um, and I thought it was a good time also to bring up because, you know, this is Lunar New Year this week. Um, but, you know, I think, first of all, like, even just the the way in which everyone referred to her as the Julia Child of, of Chinese cooking in America, I think, obviously, that's a, a big compliment to both of them, I think. But, you know, as a as an editor, as someone who's worked in media, I think it also is a reminder for me to of where, you know, we're centering uh, people and the gaze of, you know, instead of, you know, it's not, Cecilia was very much her own woman. Um, and I wish as much as I respect uh, Julia and Cecilia, I wish we could have just said she was the Cecilia Chang of Chinese, of America, because I think she was just one of the most important uh, figures in, in culture and cooking in, in, in American uh, in the past century. Um, so I, as a, it, it always, it, that, that title has taught me that, you know, it's, I think media has done this a lot in the past to, you know, compare something that, you know, to the Western view of it or to the white view. And I think that that approach really um, clarified a lot of kind of the way we talk about food and talk about culture. It's not just the, you know, the blank of another country. Um, so I think that's one, uh, but maybe more, even more powerfully, um, you know, Cecilia was always so kind to me and we met, you know, maybe a, a years ago, but it, it was when I was uh, over at Eater um, and I was, you know, a mere blogger. And she was just so kind to me and she welcomed me into her table. Um, you know, we would go out to dinner. She, she loved to go out even into her, in, into her late nineties. Um, you know, she died at age hundred a few years ago. Um, but it always struck me how she was a, so passionate about restaurants. Um, and also just, she brought together different generations at the table. Um, and I think that was just so powerful. It's a lesson the way that she was welcoming of different generations. Um, and I was, you know, several generations removed from her. Um, but you know, she had so many, um, young, uh, 
people at her table of whether it's chefs or um, pastry chefs or you know other writers, other other people in the community, and it was never about you know she just led by example. It was never it was always just a fun night at a restaurant. She was never trying to like you know necessarily hold court or you know do something whatever you want to call it. She was just so kind and generous with her her herself and the idea of just being a leader and for generations and i think she impacted so many people in across the country that i just she was just an amazing woman and uh just wanted to give her a little uh little love so uh that's my that's my julia moment it's uh maybe today will be a, a cecilia moment <laughs> That's terrific. I think that's 100% in the spirit of the Julia moment. And since you are an editor, I'm going to take the opportunity to leverage you bringing this up. At the foundation, we fully support no one ever again referring to anybody as the Julia child of this and that. And I will say for those editors who might be listening to the show, because as many people don't realize when journalists write stories, Nine times out of 10, unless it's a really tiny publication, someone else writes the headline. And those people, I'm sorry, are friggin' lazy. And that is where so many people have been anointed, the Julia Child of this and that. Sometimes it's in the story, but more often or not, it's just in the headline. So we are 100% supportive of people stopping doing that. Because as you say, people like Cecilia deserve their own recognition and don't need to be prepared. And it was certainly nothing Julia asked for. So it does bother me a little bit, though, that it ends up being sort of criticism of Julia when it was absolutely nothing Julia propagated. And we would be 100% fine with it ending right now. Amen. Thank you. So... You you work with other people. <laughs> you know the folks that eat her. It, it, we need everyone's help. It can't just be uh, stuff that uh, comes back to Julia. So, uh, but thank you, and and uh, we hope to have many more Julia moments that um, uh, turn the gaze elsewhere. So we really appreciate you doing that, and especially in honor of Lunar New Year. So uh, thank you very much for joining us, Paolo. Thanks so much for having me. It was a joy. And thanks, everyone, for listening. If you want to hear more from Paolo, it's at Paolo Lucchese, and it's at Resi on Instagram. Check out new Julia Child video clips from the French chef at Julia Child on Facebook. Make sure you're following at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram, and I'm at T. Shulkin on Instagram. The 2023 Taste of Santa Barbara is coming up May 15th to 21st. Follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram for the latest news about events in and around Santa Barbara, including a soon-to-be-announced spring pop-up. The Joy of Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH, thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Armin Spengen. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after, wherever you find your podcast. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.